Good evening. If you would, take out your Bibles and just flip a couple pages in. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to be tonight. Thank you for being here this evening. What a blessing it is for us to be together. And it's my hope and prayer that what we study tonight can be a blessing in your life as well. Tonight we're going to talk a little about the Waymaker. And God, all throughout the Bible, as he makes a way for his people. And so we're really going to be walking through almost the entire biblical story. But before we get into that tonight, I want to ask you a quick question. If someone were to ask you what your greatest power is, what would you say? What is your greatest power? Maybe you would think that it's something particular to yourself. Maybe if you're like Micah, you could just take off running and keep running and keep running on miles, miles, and miles on end. Never stop. Maybe it's something the complete opposite of that. Maybe you're thinking back to lunch and you could just keep eating and keep eating and keep eating. Or maybe it's something deeper. Maybe it's something like part of being human is that you have the power to create and you have a creative mind, right? Well, in the 1950s, there was a psychologist. He was a big self-help, self-development guy, and his name was J. Martin Coe, and he published this book. It's called Your Greatest Power, and it's less than 100 pages, so it's a great book to read. And in it, he makes a strong claim. He says that being human means that the greatest power we have is the power to choose. Think about that for a moment. The power to choose is the greatest ability that we have as humans. And he goes on in his book to talk about how it can affect your finances and your personality and your happiness. And we're not really going to get any of that, but just continue to dwell on that. Of all the abilities and the skills that we have, there may not be one greater power that's been given to us than the power to choose. I know I've heard Roger speak on it before, and he's given the number of hundreds of hundreds and thousands of times a day that we make choices. It's all around us. And when we flip to Genesis 1, we see that God put this power into man. In Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created man in his image. And as we continue to read on throughout this Genesis account, we find out that he gave them everything that was good. But he gave them rules, right? There was something that they could not have. But as we continue on reading, we read in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve misused this great power. If you just flip a page in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3, and starting in verse 8 of Genesis 3, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. We see here that clearly God was dwelling. In some way, God was dwelling with Adam and Eve. And it's interesting in verse 8 that we read that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. But they misused that great power. And so in verse 23 of Genesis chapter 3, we read that, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You ever think for a moment that the Bible could have just stopped right there? God creates man, he gives them the power to choose, and they choose themselves. They don't choose him. And so God casts them out of the garden, away from his presence, his dwelling place, and that could have been it. I mean, there's a lot more pages in here. And for most of us, if it was us, we probably would have said, yeah, that's it. But God doesn't do that. It seems that he constantly, throughout this Bible that we have, tries to make a way to dwell among his people again. And in this Genesis chapter 3 narrative, he makes a bizarre promise to Eve, saying that he will put enmity between the serpent that deceived her, and he will bruise that serpent's head. And as we read on throughout Genesis we find this character named Abraham, and God just makes promises to him. And generations pass, and more generations pass, and some of these promises come true through Abraham. And he brings this great nation of people out of slavery, out of Egypt. And he gives them instructions when he brings them out of slavery, out of Egypt, this great nation that he's creating. And in the instructions on how to worship him, he tells them to build him a tent, of all things. In Exodus 25, he says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. And in that tabernacle, God had very interesting items that he wanted placed. He wanted a lampstand. He wanted bread that just so happens to be called the bread of presence. You notice how Adam and Eve have fled from the presence in Genesis that we just read? This bread is called the bread of presence, and there's an altar just to get in. And there's an altar of incense, and there's a basin for washing. And all of these just so happen to allude back to creation and Eden. But the people follow these instructions. Moses, in particular, follows these instructions and when the tabernacle is completed, we read something pretty fascinating. Go with me to Exodus chapter 40. In Exodus chapter 40, last chapter of this book, starting in verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. He sets up this way, this tent that could just be set up wherever they were so that they could worship him and so that he could dwell among his people. And as the biblical narrative continues, his people finally enter this promised land that was promised to Abraham. And when they entered this promised land, this tent for them was just no good anymore. They had to build him something greater. And so King Solomon goes to build something greater. And in 1 Kings we read, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. And so Solomon builds this absolutely incredible temple. It would have been one of the most amazing structures that the world has ever seen. And if you would, turn over to 1 Kings. He completes this temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8, they complete the temple. They put all the furnishings inside of the temple. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, we read in verse 10 something that already seems to be familiar. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. If there was ever going to be a way, this would have been it. If you were an Israelite and you saw this incredible temple and you saw it in the promised land, the land of milk and honey, and you had peace and prosperity all around you built by Solomon, one of the wisest men to ever live and the richest man to ever live, this would have been it. This would have been the pinnacle. But if you notice in 1 Kings, there's more that comes after this. And even though, even though the average Israelite couldn't exactly enter into this temple, this was still it for them. They loved it. God gives a warning, though, in 1 Kings chapter 9. Just turn one more page in your Bible. In 1 Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, as soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever." As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, 
And do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold onto other gods, and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. He gives a blessing, but he also gives a very strong warning. And we don't have to read that far. I love, my Bible just has a number of subtitles. If you literally just turn a page or two in your subtitles, 1 Kings 11 says Solomon turns from the Lord. And then it says the Lord raises adversaries. And then in 1 Kings 12, my subtitle says Rehoboam's folly. And then it says the kingdom divided. And we read about golden calves and prophets disobeying. It doesn't take long for God's people to not choose him. Ultimately, they choose themselves. And so they turned away. And even though they turned away, God didn't give up on his image bearers. Even as Israel is taken into captivity, even as this temple is destroyed and plundered, and a lesser version is, tries to be constructed, all seems lost. And then we have years of silence. We have hundreds of years of silence from God. And if you were an Israelite, you were sitting there desperate, desperate for the God that you had turned your back on to come back and make a way to dwell among his people again. As we know, ultimately he does. If you would, turn over to John 1. The more that I read this chapter in the Bible, the more I think it might just be my favorite chapter. Every time I read it, or I read some sort of commentary on it, I find something new. I find something I didn't know before. But in John 1, starting in verse 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Speaking about Jesus here, John says in verse 3 that all things were made through him. And as John continues on, all of a sudden it seems like maybe he makes an allusion to this tabernacle. In verse 14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, being the way maker that he was, was going to make a way to dwell among his people. And so we read that Jesus became flesh and he dwelt. And this Greek word that John uses for dwelt, he uses again only in the book of Revelation. And you know what it means? It means similar to dwelling in a tent. And so we quite literally could read, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. 
It's almost as if John is alluding to the fact that Jesus was the presence of God coming to the earth. He was the culmination of everything. And you might say, well, okay, that's, that's there, but I, I'm struggling to see how strong this is. Well, John continues on, and he leaves no doubt in our mind in the second half of verse 14. He says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. Do you remember those two passages that we just read about what happened when they finished with the tabernacle and when they finished with the temple? The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And the priests could not stand to go in because the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. And so John says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. John's making sure that we know that Jesus was God dwelling among us and was the culmination of all things that came before him. And it wasn't just this tabernacle. In the book of John, Jesus makes a reference to the temple. Jesus goes in to drive out all of these people who are trying to make money in the temple. And the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus talks again as though he is the culmination of the temple. And do you remember all those items that we mentioned that were in the tabernacle and the temple that seemed to kind of go back to the beginning of creation? We're not going to go through all of them, but just a few. It seems like Jesus was almost the embodiment of these. And as we go through these, you'll notice a lot of these Jason mentioned this morning. Remember that bread, that, that bread of presence. In John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And not only that, but every first Sunday, right, we take of the Lord's Supper, and when Jesus instituted that, he said, this bread, this is my body that is broken for you. And then there was a lampstand. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And there was that altar that you had to make sacrifices just to get in. In John 1, as John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Hebrew writer tries to confirm this in our minds. In Hebrews 9, as I have on the screen behind me, he confirms this. He says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And John is not done in John chapter 1. He continues on in verse 16. 
For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Notice in verse 17, he says, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Just as everything was made through him, in verse 3, great, grace and truth came through him in verse 17. When you think about something going through something, that sounds a lot like a way, doesn't it? Jesus himself said it, that he was and he is the way. In John 14, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And when Christ was that perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was sacrificed on a cross for us, the veil of that temple that separated the most holy place was torn into two. And you know what was on that veil? There were cherubim. Remember how we read in Genesis what God put next to the garden to make sure that Adam and Eve could not get back in? Cherubim. And so that veil was torn in two. And just like how Adam and Eve couldn't have that direct access with God anymore, we find that when that veil is torn through Christ, we have access to the Father. So you say, okay, this is a bunch of Points that John makes, and that's great, but what does this have to do with me? How does this change my life right now, right? It just sounds like you're just making a bunch of random connections between the Old and New Testament. And up to this point, you'd be right. But can I tell you a couple things? Number one, we talked about this in the high school class a little bit. You can't just make this up. All of this we just went through, it's really hard to just make all this up. When you go out into the world this week, People want to tell you that what you believe is just a bunch of fairy tales, right? It's just legends handed down over time. But the more that I read this and the more that I see all these connections of what God has done throughout this story, I don't think you can just make this up. Maybe you're headed into work this week. Maybe you're headed into work in an environment that looks down on you for your faith. Or maybe you're a student. Maybe you're getting ready to go back to school in two or three weeks and you're about to deal with students and teachers alike that want to look down on you for what you believe. Maybe you have doubts about what you read. Maybe some things are hard to believe. Or maybe you just have a lot of worry in your life. Can I suggest to you that maybe this should make you a little bit more confident in the God you serve when you go out this week into the world? That all of this isn't just a bunch of academia to try and look up and find out. That this is real. And that this is the God that created you just as he did Adam and Eve. And can I suggest to you that maybe some of those worries that you have going forward, maybe they could just subside a little bit. I'm not saying that everything's going to turn out perfectly for you as how you want it to this week. But it, the more I read this, it turns out that God's a pretty great planner. And when I think about some of my worries and some of my doubts, 
and I see some of these connections of what he has done throughout the history of time, maybe I don't need to worry as much. Maybe I don't need to have quite as many doubts. And not only that, but this is of the utmost importance. This is a huge theme of the Bible, that God has made a way when you and I didn't deserve it, and that he wants to dwell with us, and that through Christ we can have access to God. In Hebrews chapter 10, the Hebrew writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have access to the throne. And not only that, but because Christ gave his life, his spirit can dwell within us. Romans 8 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And ultimately, at the end of this biblical narrative, we read that through this way, through Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, we can be transformed and dwell with him through eternity. Revelation 21, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I'm sure you can probably guess it, but you know what you could sacrifice and switch out that word dwell with? It'd be tabernacle. You could say he will tabernacle with them, and they will be his people. And he would tabernacle with them just as he always has from the very beginning. From those children of Israel who he brought out of slavery. He is the way maker who sent us broken people the way so that we can dwell with him for eternity. So just like Adam and Eve and every human being since then, you're made in the image of God. And you have incredible value because of that. Never forget that. But you've also been given that same incredible power, the power to choose. And the reality is that every one of us has chosen poorly in our lives. It doesn't take long for us to think back on all the times that we have chosen ourselves. But God, being the way maker that he is, made a way. And he sent that way, Jesus, to dwell among us. And as John said, through him, that way, we can have the incredible grace 
in our lives that we so desperately need. To finish tonight, I just want to read a verse of a song uh, that I've really enjoyed and has been on repeat for me over the past couple years. And the song is called I Choose You, and it's actually by a bluegrass band called the Steel Drivers. And it's a love song, uh, but the more that I hear it, the more that I think about the walk that we have with God. And the last verse says, people wonder how we made it, how we even came this far. It's a wondrous thing to turn around and see where we are. It's a good thing love forgives, and it's a blessing love is blind. They ask me how we made it, I say one day at a time, because I choose you. Every day in a hundred different ways, I make the choice to stay. I can hit the open road to, and run my life away, but I choose you every day. As I said, the more I think about that, the more that I think about our faith. I think about that incredible power that God's given us. And when I think about walking with Jesus and I think about dwelling with him one day, I don't think it'll be because I checked just enough boxes or because I remembered just enough facts. But it'll be because every day when I woke up, I chose him in a hundred different ways. And I allowed his grace to fully take over my life and transform me. And so tonight, even though each one of us has failed in the past, we have a little bit more time to use that incredible power, the power to choose. And tonight, if you need to choose Jesus, don't hesitate. Come forward right now while we stand and sing.